Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn to John chapter 14. We're going to pick up at verse 25. This is the Word of the Lord. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we've come to the last section of chapter 14. There have been uh, seven sermons up to this point in chapter 14. It's a very dense chapter. It doesn't let up in the coming chapters very much. Uh, It's very dense. This final section acts, I think, as a summary of, of what has come before. You'll notice that he again mentions the coming of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, right? When he comes, the Holy Spirit will teach and bring to remembrance all the the words and commands and teachings of the Son of God. This happened in history on the day of Pentecost, okay? And throughout history, through the continued work of the Holy Spirit, in the churches. Also, in, in this summary, Jesus speaks of peace, a peace that is spiritual and not worldly, a, a peace that will guard their hearts and their minds in him. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Also, again, he, he again assures them that it is good that he goes away to the Father. It's to their advantage. Right? If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. Right? And again, he speaks of his submission to the will of his Father. I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So these are themes that, that have been working in and out of that whole chapter. And they're sort of summarized again here. Um, but there are two teachings in this section that are striking and that I sort of approached this week with fear and trembling. I want to focus on those this morning. The first is this statement about God the Father in verse 28. 
Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. The Father is greater than I. And second, this this statement about Satan in verse 30, the, the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. So those two statements sort of pop out of the page as one, he, he's, he's alluded to those things, but um, they're said so starkly. So first, what are we to make of Jesus' stark statement that his father is greater than he? If you have spent any time studying uh, Trinitarian theology, you know that it is essential, absolutely essential to maintain the equality of the three persons of the Trinity. Our catechism teaches us that essential point in question six. So children, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Who's got it? Boom. Nice job. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, the same in essence, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Okay, so so it's maintaining their equality, it's maintaining they're the same substance, it's maintaining this. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God, and they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Not only are they one, but they are three persons and the same in substance. They are equal in power, and I would take that as what they do, and glory, what they are. Their being and their actions are one, okay? Or they're equal. Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, but one God, not three separate gods, okay? This is, right, we get this. This is like Trinitarian Theology 101, correct? It's not three gods, it's one God, three persons. There can only be one absolute sovereign, and that one sovereign is the triune God, okay? And here is the important points that begin to scratch the surface of Jesus' statement about his Father being greater. Two different points. First, certainly this passage teaches us that there was an order to the work of redemption, okay? Now stick with me here. It's Trinitarian theology morning, right? Um, we have to be able to talk about these things, and there are applications that are very important. This passage teaches us that there was an order to the work of redemption. It was the Father's plan that the Son executed and the Spirit applied to God's people, to God's chosen people. There was an order in that plan of redemption. So we can safely say and must say that the incarnation of the Son of God his enduring the cross, his being laid in the tomb, are acts of submission by the Son for the purpose of saving you and me from death. So clearly he's submitting to his Father. He's executing the plan, right? That's what Jesus did. 
Father had the plan. Jesus executed the plan. He's submitting. He does everything that the Father commands him to do. And then the Spirit, doing the bidding of both the Father and the Son, applies that work of Christ to our souls through the new birth, through regeneration. That's where we get an understanding of these things. So when it comes to the redemption of mankind and Christ's humiliation and the Spirit's subsequent work of opening our eyes, the Father is greater than the Son because the Father had the plan. Okay, that's just, there's nothing controversial about that. Uh, The Father had the plan. The Father was in charge. The Son executed the plan by submitting to the plan, and the Spirit applied that work of redemption to the church in obedience to both the Father and the Son. Okay, so in the work of redemption, we see that. We see the submission of Jesus. In the work of incarnation, we see Jesus humbling himself and submitting to his Father. But can we or need we say more than that? And this is where it gets hairy whatever that means. Can we or need we say more than that? More than that any distinction between the persons only relates to the work of redemption. A lot of people want to say that. Whatever distinctions there are, it only relates to the incarnation, the work of redemption. Many don't want to go there because it is at this point where Trinitarian theology is is hard. So, What am I talking about? Well, Orthodox Christian theology teaches the equal power and glory between the three persons. We just went through that. They are one and the same substance, okay? What one does, they all do. There's no contradictory will. Like, there's no contradictory will between the three persons because there is only one will, okay? Um, Here's a summary of that from uh, a Trinitarian theologian that's smarter than me. Letham says, All that is God, all that can ever be said to be God without dilution or subtraction constitutes the person of the Son, and in turn the person of the Spirit, just as it is with the person of the Father. Each person of the Trinity when considered in himself, so each of the three persons, when considered in himself, is absolutely 100% God. And at the same time, 100% of God is in each person. The whole God is in each person, and each person is the whole God. Okay? Got it? Simple. At the same time, the one being of God is simple and not divisible. It is impossible to cut off or detach part of God, leaving the rest behind as can be done with a created being. And he gives the example, um, it's, it's possible, for instance, to remove a human kidney from its original owner and transfer it to another person. That's not possible with God. You can't cut off a part of him and transfer it to something or someone else. Such a thing is not possible with God. He cannot be divided. That is why the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit comprise all of God, both severally or separately and together. In other words, there is only one divine essence, 
one divine being, one divine substance. Okay? These are words that have been used for ages. And we have to maintain that. If we don't maintain that there's one God here, one substance, well, um, and that they are in some way separable from one another, well, then we've become tritheistic heretics. We had to have three gods if we divided them. And yet, when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, is there any sense in which we can maintain that order outside the work of redemption and incarnation in his work on the cross? Is it only limited to that time where he's greater or can, does it apply, does that statement apply beyond just the, the work he did on earth as a man? Well, here's the key, I believe. Even while maintaining what I just shared with you from Lethem, that God is not divisible because the three persons are one essence, there is an eternal relation between the three persons, okay? Just get that in your head. You may not understand it even after I'm done preaching, okay? The eternal relation of the three persons that are one God. Athanasius puts it like this. And Athanasius, he was the bomb on the Trinity. So was Augustine. He wrote a book on the Trinity. Um, the Cappadocian Fathers, they wrote a lot on the Trinity. But Athanasius says this, the Son is all that the Father is, except for being the Father. He's all that He is, except for being the Father. There is an eternal order of relations between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There is also no division between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The three persons are one substance and are eternally related to one another as Father, Son, and Spirit. We can say the Father is first, the Son is second, and the Spirit is third. Um, the Athanasian Creed helps us to maintain this balance between substance being one and the relations of the persons when it says this. This is the Athanasian Creed. This is one of our constitutional creeds. We would confess this together if it wasn't two pages long. Here's what it says. Now, this is the Catholic faith, the universal, the worldwide faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons, i.e. erasing the distinctions between the persons, nor dividing the essence, becoming tritheistic heretics, right? For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And so I think what I've been saying is all wrapped up very neatly, as uh, probably as neatly as can be said, without falling into two ditches on this. There's the ditch of philosophical lack of distinctions among the persons on one side. 
People want to talk about God as a concept. And so they diminish the distinction of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't really treat them as, as persons, right? And then on the other side, you know, there are tritheistic heretics who want to take the three and make them into three gods. Too much distinction, too much division. They divide up the essence, the substance. Okay? We maintain the one substance along with the distinction of the persons. And the distinction of the persons is not merely associated with the incarnation of the Son of God, but reaches back to all eternity, all the way back, whatever that is. I mean, back is before time, so it's, it's not really back, it's, it is what it is. You know, how do you describe it? You know, before time, God existed as one substance, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. Now, got to pull some bob ink in here, right? Speaking, and I'm sticking close to my manuscript, and I realize this is more theological than what we're used to, but it's important. Speaking of the relationship of the three persons the relationship of the three persons, the divine relations between the persons, not the divine essence. Bavink writes, although Scripture is rigorously monotheistic, it does describe a divine nature and divine perfections also to the Son and the Spirit and puts them on a par with the Father. Not only are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinct subjects in the one divine essence that also always appear in a certain order. Their so-called personal properties are paternity or unbegottenness, that's the father, filiation or sonship, begottenness, that's the son, and sanctification or the spirit, which is procession. The persons differ individually only in that there is that one is the father, the other the son, and the third the spirit. Those characteristics are eternal. Fatherhood, listen to this statement. Fatherhood is only an accidental attribute of being human. It's accidental. Some men never become fathers. We're not fathers before becoming one. Or our humanity as men is not exhausted by being fathers or sons. But in God, being God and personhood coincide. In each of the three persons, we might say, the divine being is completely coextensive with being Father, Son, and Spirit. Paternity, filiation, procession are not accidental properties, but the eternal modes of existence and the eternal imminent relations within that being. So the Father is always a Father, the Son has always been the Son, the Spirit has always been the Spirit, and that makes their relations distinct from one another, and they're one substance. So to pull it all together, it is essential to maintain the singular essence of God and the absolute and eternal manner in which the three persons relate to one another. Some just want to maintain that Christ taking on the flesh, becoming man, is the only sense in which we can talk about Christ's submission or even his inferiority to the Father. 
when he took on the flesh. But I think Christ's statement here in John 14 can be taken to speak to the eternal order of relations between the persons of the Trinity. Okay? Is Christ inferior? Well, we've been trying to be clear about that. In regard to the divine essence, absolutely not. In regard to his incarnation, certainly. In regard to the way the three persons relate to another eternally, well, there are distinctions. And the Father is the Father, and the Son is the Son, not the Father, and the Spirit is the Spirit, not the Father and the Son. And that relationship between the three made it absolutely inevitable, think about this, that the Father would have the plan, the Son would execute the plan, and the Spirit would apply the results of the work of Christ to his people. The Father would never and could never become incarnate, obeying the Son. That would have been disordered. Okay? It is not arbitrary that Christ was incarnate, but it was by virtue of him being the Son, the Second, the one who submits to the Father, right? That's why he did what he did in submitting to the Father. So eternal order determines what follows, and at least in the sense of the eternal relations between the three, we can speak of the Father being greater than the Son. But only in the nuanced way I've been talking about. It is not to say anything about the divine essence, right? It's about the order of relations. One last thing on this, and this was very pleasing to find uh, in Augustine. Augustine said it. Augustine said all of this before um, I lisped through it. Augustine, in his On the Trinity, maintained that there were three ways the Son um, is spoken of in relation to his Father. Scripture maintains three ways that the Son is spoken of in relation to the Father. First, he is God and therefore is equal with the Father, right? One, one substance. Second, he is said to take on the form of a servant in the incarnation and is therefore less than the Father. Incarnation. He's got a body, right? He becomes inferior in that sense. Then third, and this is what I've been saying, maybe you've picked it up, maybe you haven't, I don't know. Third, he is spoken of as the Son, making him equal to the Father, but from him as God of God and light of light. And then Lethem explains for Augustine, this is not a matter of inequality, but of birth. For the Son is not less than, but equal to the Father, but yet from Him. That tiny little distinction. And so when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, everybody just wants to subsume that down to incarnation, just the time when, when He took on the body. And I say, no, 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 it's, it's always been. It goes back much farther than that because there's always been order within the Trinity and the Son has always been the Son. They didn't just swap roles. They didn't, you know, it wasn't just arbitrary what they were. He was, the, the, the begotten one has always been the Son. The unbegotten one has always been the Father. Now, why should you care about this? 
I mean, maybe I, yeah. Um, You should care about this, one, because it's your God. It's your God, and he's glorious. He's three in one. That is so clearly laid out in Scripture. And just to think about him and who he is and how he has always been, even before creation, is, is your glory. But you should care about this because it has application to human relations, particularly between husbands and wives. This is being hotly debated today by theologians. Did you know that? I mean, there's just like books, book after book after book and arguments and blogs and podcasts being written on this topic. On one side are philosophically minded egalitarians who want to remove any idea of order or distinction of persons in the Trinity. They want to get rid of this side. Why? Because they abhor the idea of order in marriage, and so they'll recast Trinitarian theology to bolster their desire for egalitarian marriages. They clutch their pearls when any talk of eternal order within the Trinity, no matter how carefully nuanced, is discussed. As soon as you talk about order in the Trinity existing in all time, they 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 uh, accuse you of being non-Nicene, subordinationist, tritheist. Even though it's there in Augustine, it's there in Athanasius, it's there in the Nicene Creed. And so, and because they refuse to understand that submission is not a declaration of inferiority, but merely right, an expression of order within equality. Even their view of Christ's submission during his incarnation is indicative of his inferiority is bad. Christ's submission to the Father is obedience to his Father, is carrying out of the Father's command. Even his taking on the flesh and living in our midst is not an indication of his inferiority, but it is an expression of his eternal sonship. It is the realization of an eternal order of relationship within the one divine essence. So our egalitarian theologians who want to erase distinction of the persons and ever and only see submission as an indication of inferiority, that's what they do. When in fact, submission is merely good order according to divine personhood. what it is. Just as it was inevitable that the Son would become incarnate, not the Father, because of divine order in the relations among the persons of the Trinity, so it is inevitable that wives should submit to their husbands because of the order of relations that God built into his creation by virtue of the man being created first, the woman second, and the woman being formed for the man and not the man for the woman. That's scripture. Don't start throwing tomatoes. That does not mean they are unequal. But it does mean there is order between them. Just as there is in the eternal relations among the the Trinity. Among the persons of the Trinity. That is in fact why you should care about this. 
right? Without this doctrine, everything becomes an egalitarian sludge that will not ever allow any kind of order to exist within equality. You know? There has to be absolute equality that gets rid of order. Read Harrison Bergeron. It's ridiculous. You cannot live that way. Right? The egalitarian can only and ever see submission as a declaration of inferiority. The Trinity not only gives us an example of order and equality, but shows us it is at the very center of all reality. It's God's being. It pre-exists creation. Order, inequality. So let me put it this way. The Son is the Son from all eternity. He is always related to the Father as His Son, even as they are equal in power and glory. You are a woman from the time God knit you together in your mother's womb, and you will ever be a woman. Be a woman as the Son is and always has been the Son. Do not disconnect your being from your doing as is the ideology not just of egalitarians, but of the whole transgender movement. Transgender movement doesn't understand Trinitarian theology. Do not view order as always and ever implying inferiority. It does not. The Father is greater than I, said Jesus. And so what I've tried to convey is just scratching the surface of this statement of the Son of God. And I hope it was helpful. Now, enough on that. The other important statement from Jesus in this passage has to do with his relationship to the devil. The evil one, the serpent of old, the prince of the power of the air, as he's called. That fallen and proud angel that has lived to accuse you and undermine your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan. Yes, we believe that Satan is a real, actual being with power. But his power, we know from Scripture, as we learn from the book of Job, is limited by God's permission. You remember from Job that Satan can only do what God gave him permission to do. And so Satan's power is bounded and determined by God's permission and is today and ever will be. Notice what Jesus says here. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. The first thing to point out is that Jesus is teaching that the world lies under the power of the devil. Right now. He calls him the ruler of the world in, this first, in his first epistle. John writes, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Back in chapter 12 of John's gospel, Jesus calls him the ruler of the world. And the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this world. And the one who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is said to have great power over the nations. And when someone comes to faith, right, it's said that he is rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1. Even still, 
Satan is said to fight against God's people. You realize that, right? You're in a battle. He tempts us. Stop depriving one another. The Apostle Paul talking about marital relations. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan hinders us from doing things. 1 Thessalonians 2, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. He is an enemy to us and wants to devour us. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And yet, dear brothers and sisters, he can be resisted by faith. But resist him firm in your faith. And in the book of James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Implied in that is that if you do not resist him by your faith, he will afflict you, right? The church is called to fight against him and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one, right? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And then this helpful statement about the power of the church over Satan from the apostle Paul, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, And so, though Satan continues to be an enemy of you and of the church, he is a vanquished enemy that knows his ultimate doom is coming. How does he know this? Because after Satan's greatest assault on the Son of God, at the very point when he thought he had the victory in the Son of God, who, as he probably thought, foolishly assumed the human flesh, was dying on the tree, forsaken by his father, and who died, Satan was probably like, I've won! But then Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) That resurrection was the proof that through, through, through him coming alive, Satan could assault him viciously and with the fullness of his bitter, hateful heart, but he really had no power over him, no part in Jesus at all. Satan could proclaim all kinds of blasphemies against the Son of God, but he could do nothing to derail our perfect, conquering, resurrected King. Nothing. Truly, this was the moment when the greatest prophecy of all of Scripture was fulfilled, right? At the cross and the subsequent resurrection, God speaks to Satan immediately after the fall and tells him the sad, this, about his savage defeat that's coming, right? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. And you get to nip at his heels. So though the world today does continue by God's permission to be ruled by the God of this world, there are those who have been transferred out of that evil, dark, loathsome kingdom which we used to live in and into the kingdom of His Son. Though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, there are those who are of God, those who are united to Christ, who have been pro, you know, 
promoted to a peaceful and ever good and glorious kingdom that is ruled by a wonderfully kind and forgiving and benevolent king. Right? Hebrews 2.14 says that, that through death, Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, so that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Satan had nothing in Christ. No power over him. And, and through his death and resurrection, we have been set free from the slavery both to Satan and to the fear of death. So the battle has been won even though God allows Satan to roam about the earth. But do not fear, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing like the serpent of old, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Right? Satan has nothing in him. This, this world is not this competition that somehow is unknown how it ends between Satan and Jesus. So many churches portray that that fight like that. And it's not. He's a vanquished enemy that God permits to do what he's doing. Even to test us. Even to test us. But nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for your triune glory. We thank you that you are one God in three persons. We thank you that you have always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that knowing who you are will, will inform how we are to live. That we would not be embarrassed by that because you are the foundation of, of everything visible and invisible. You are you are, uh, you, you pre-exist all things and all of us. And Father, we pray that we would not tremble before Satan, but that we would merely flee from him and he would flee from us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.